can stomp, they can yell, they can become sullen and withdrawn, they can boohoo like nobody's business, but they can also resort to bullying people to get what they want. And it's sad to say, but Christians can sometimes act just like demanding children who want things their way. Temper tantrums in churches may not include church members lying on the floor kicking and screaming, but I've seen them come close to that. Problems don't usually resolve themselves. It takes a lot of love, a lot of work, a lot of patience to resolve most of the problems within the life of a church. The strange thing about being part of a church is that we actually give up our preferences when we join. We actually give up our preferences when we become part of a local church. Being active and involved in church is not about us. It's about serving Christ. It's about serving others. There may be some things in the church, about the church that you really uh, like or don't like, but you're here to serve others. That's the bottom line. You're here to give, not just to receive. So how do we keep ourselves from being selfish? How do we follow the example of Jesus who prayed in the garden the night before he went to the cross? He said, uh, Father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Well, I think the answer to that is simple. Instead of seeking to serve ourselves, we have to seek to serve others. Instead of trying to be first, we make every effort to be last. Our motivation should not be to get our preferences moved to the top of the list. Instead, we should seek to subordinate our needs and our wants to the needs of others. And that's very easy to say, but it's so difficult to do. Jesus talked a lot about servanthood. In Mark chapter 9, we read, after they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out there on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. He sat down, called the 12 disciples over to him and said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Now, selfishness and pride doesn't just affect a few people. It's something that plagues all of us because our sinful nature is what drives those desires. And even Jesus' closest followers were susceptible to that pool of selfishness and pride. This was not a one-time incident. My guess is there were several times over those three years that they walked with Jesus that they had this conversation. Now, I'm just kind of imagining that band of 13 traveling by foot on the way to Capernaum this day, and Jesus is in the lead, and the others are quite a few steps behind, and these foolish disciples had forgotten that Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. He knows everything. They think that hanging back, they can debate the most important issues on their mind, and he's not hearing which one of us is the best disciple? Who's the one closest to Jesus? When Jesus isn't around, who's in charge? Which one of us is the top dog? So when they arrive at Capernaum, Jesus confronts them over their behavior on the road. 
what could the disciples do? They know they had no defense for that behavior. They thought Jesus couldn't possibly have known what they were doing. Can you imagine how they felt when Jesus sat down and called them to gather around? Now, teachers in the first century often sat while they taught, so Jesus took the position of a teacher, and he spoke words that really seem at odds with what our human nature urges us to do. He said, if you really want to be the greatest, you have to be the least. If you want the real positions of honor, then you have to be a servant first. The word servant occurs 57 times in the New Testament. The word serve, about 58 times in the New Testament. Jesus said that we must be last of all and servant of all. Tom Rayner, who's with Lifeway Research, um, cites a study done by his research team on churches that are inwardly focused. And he says that they are only concerned with their preferences. They want people to join their church, but only if those people comply with what's already being done to benefit the current members. In other words, come be like us and do what we do. There's no desire to be outwardly focused, finding ways to reach people outside the church with the gospel of Jesus. These are churches that are largely self-serving. And Rainer gives uh, 10 dominant behavioral patterns of members of inwardly focused congregations. Now remember, a pattern is something that's a consistent behavior, not an isolated incident. So these behavior patterns are not ranked in any order, this is just a list. And he said one of the characteristics, one of the behavioral patterns of an inwardly focused church is that they argue about worship. One or more factions in the church want music to be the way they like it. They des the desire may be for all traditional hymns and a kind of a traditional liturgy. The other might swing the opposite direction, want modern songs, less liturgy. It might even involve a mixture of the two. But certain instruments, you know, are required. Some are prohibited. For the traditionalists, it's usually piano and organ. For the more contemporary folks, you know, it's... It's uh, guitars and, and keyboards and drums. Listen to what St. Paul says in Colossians 3.16. He said, let the message about Christ in all of its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs covers quite a wide range of musical styles that God finds worshipful, that God finds acceptable. Point being, why do we argue about worship? The second thing on the list was prolonged meetings. And not just long meetings, but meetings where very little God gets accomplished. Small, trivial things take up most of the congregation's time. Many of the meetings in a lot of churches deal with the most inconsequential things, while the great commission of Jesus and the great commandment to go into the world and make disciples goes largely ignored. The third is a, a focus on the facility. 
One of the highest priorities in some churches is to protect and preserve their rooms and their furniture and their carpet and their decorations and other visible parts of the church's buildings and grounds. It's more important to preserve the past and to find feasible and functional ways to, uh, than it is to find feasible and functional ways to spread the good news of Jesus Christ to new people. The church here, our, our vision has always been that the church is a tool for ministry. Paint and carpet can be replaced, but many churches care more about their buildings than they do about their people. Number four is being program-driven. Every church has programs, whether they admit to it or not. And when we start a new ministry, uh, after a while, it often takes on program status. And sometimes, you know, programs themselves are not a problem, but when the program becomes more, when people become more concerned with continuing a program, whether it's useful or not, than meeting the needs of the current culture and reaching out to people who are lost and without Christ, it becomes a problem. Programs almost always become an object of our worship. Fifth, in inwardly uh, focused churches, there's inwardly focused budgets. A disproportionate share of the budget is used to meet the needs and the comforts of the members instead of reaching the community with the gospel. And the main reason this happens is because churches don't, not all churches have a clear and compelling vision and their budget is not aligned to their vision. Number six is a high demand for pastoral care. Now we know that everybody in a church deserves care and concern, especially in times of need and crisis. But the problem is that in some of the churches, uh, that I get to be in and coach and help, uh, I've seen unreasonable expectations on the pastoral staff and the leadership because they expect pastoral visits to be just because they have membership status. Seven is an attitude of entitlement. Now this may be a catch-all for many of the other issues of inwardly focused churches, but an inwardly focused church, in an inwardly focused church, a large number of the congregation have this overarching attitude that their membership status entitles them to have all their preferences met. They think they deserve special treatment. Number eight is a greater concern about change than the gospel. Even the slightest change can evoke anger in self-serving, inwardly focused people. Some are passionate about not changing pretty much anything. Sadly, while they're passionate about their preferences, there's a notable lack of passion about the teachings of Jesus and the salvation of those who are lost and without hope in the world. Ninth is anger and hostility. Some people are almost always upset at the leaders of the church or at other church members, and they use that anger and hostility to try to corral others into giving in to their preferences. Number 10 is evangelistic apathy. Very few members in many of our churches actually share their faith with anybody else. They're more concerned about their own personal desires, preferences, and needs than they are about the eternal needs of the people who live around them or even live across the street. The problem with inwardly focused churches is summed up with three words, I, me, myself. I want the music my way, I want the building my way, I'm upset if the pastor doesn't uh, spend enough time with me, they don't do things my way or make my preferences the highest priority. 
You know, there's a very important principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I want you to hear what the Apostle Paul says. You say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. Being part of a church is, is about putting other people first. Being a Christian, being a Christ follower is about putting others first. Some of you know this, but there are two major bodies of water in the land where Jesus walked in Israel and Palestine. One is the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful lake of 13 miles long, seven miles wide, lots of fish, and surrounded by lush foliage. The other body of water is the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is 50 miles long and 11 miles wide, and its shoreline is 1,300 feet below sea level. Now, seven million tons of water evaporate from the Dead Sea every day. The saline or salt content of the water ranges from about 26 to 35%, making it 10 times saltier than the oceans of the world. There's no seaweed or plants of any kind uh, in the Dead Sea. There's no fish, uh, no creatures living in the water. It's a, as a matter of fact, you'll, you'll see on the shores of the sea uh, white crystals of salt covering everything. And according to extremescience.com, fish accidentally swimming into the waters of one of the from one of the several freshwater streams that feed the Dead Sea die instantly. Their bodies are quickly coated with a preserving layer of salt crystals and then tossed on the shore by the wind or the waves. Both the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea are fed by the Jordan River. There's only one difference between these two bodies of water. Only one thing that causes the Sea of Galilee to be this beautiful lake alive with all kinds of fish and vegetation and the Dead Sea to be barren and lifeless. The Sea of Galilee has an outlet. The Dead Sea does not. Water flows through the Sea of Galilee, comes in and goes out. Water goes into the Dead Sea, but not out of it. Now I hope the analogy is clear that if we are not receive, if we are only receiving and not giving, we become stagnant, we become lifeless, we become bitter, and even caustic. At the church at Philippi, there was a problem. There was this disagreement, there was a disunity, because two members of this congregation uh, two women by the name of Euoda and Syntyche were at odds with each other. These two women had at one time worked together with each other uh, and with the Apostle Paul in furthering the work of the gospel, but something had happened and they were now having a major problem with each other. And as usually the case in any congregation, I'm pretty sure that there were others in that Philippian congregation who either sided with one of the women or took the other side. And along with the two chosen sides were usually some people who were just generally disturbed that there's this dissension going on. It was dividing this congregation. St. Paul writes this advice to the church. He says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? 
then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other and loving each other and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Pretty wise words for any congregation. Instead of fighting for my preferences, we should be humble and valuing others above ourselves. We shouldn't be just concerned with our interests, but the interests of others within the life of the church. Paul then goes on to illustrate this idea with an example of Jesus' life. He said, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What were the marks of Jesus' life? We know that he did not consider equality of God, with God as something to be used to his advantage. We know that he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it seems if we approach involvement in the local church from the perspective of entitlement, we have it all upside down, don't we? We are to be servants. We are to be obedient to Christ. We are to do whatever it takes to keep the unity in the church without compromising the principles of the Word of God. Some of you here tonight are old enough to remember uh, 1961. Uh, some of you may not, but you may have read about it in, the, in your history books. John F. Kennedy delivered his inaugural address when he was sworn in as President of the United States. And in, closing, in his closing statements, he spoke these now famous words, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And maybe we can state today's, tonight's message in a simple statement, a simple idea. I should not be asking what my church can do for me. I should be asking what can I do for my church. See, the church is the body of Christ. Christ is the head of the body, head of the church. And when we serve the body, we're serving Christ. When we put Christ and other people first, we find a joy that comes with being last. To sum it all up, it's not about what I get. It's about what I give. Even a cantankerous and ornery church member is one of those that we are pledged to serve. Tonight we're going to, and throughout the remainder of this series, the next couple of weeks, we're going to end with a pledge. And the pledge is um, just a statement, and if you would like to share it, feel free to do that. I'm going to read it through. If you'd like to read along with me, 
Feel free to do that. Uh, if you choose not to, that's okay. But it's a pledge about, being, uh, about your commitment to the life of the church. And here it is. I will not let my church be about my preferences and desires. That is self-serving. I am involved in this church to serve others and to serve Christ. My Savior went to a cross for me. I can deal with any inconveniences and matters that just aren't my preferences or style. I love the words of Jesus where he said, but among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, when we think about Jesus' undeserved love for us, what caused him to sacrifice everything, including his preferences, then it's a lot easier for us to do the same. Christ's sacrifice is what puts it all in perspective. Pray with me. Lord, let your mind be in each of us and in our homes and in our church. Let us have the mind of Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his advantage. God, give us the hearts and give us the love to put each other first, to make ourselves nothing by taking the nature of a servant. Humble us that we may become obedient and die to self. Lord, you exalted Jesus to the highest place and you gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To your glory, God, make us more like Jesus, more of you and less of us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray.